0: We will read Psalm chapter 2 again. Psalm chapter 2, and then we'll pray. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, "'Let us tear their fetters apart "'and cast away their cords from us. "'He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. "'The Lord scoffs at them. "'Then he will speak to them in his anger "'and terrify them in his fury, saying, "'But as for me, I have installed my king "'upon Zion, my holy mountain. "'I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord.' He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoicing with trembling, Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask you this morning to do what it is impossible for me to do. I can't open the eyes of the blind cause the deaf to hear, raise the dead, and yet there is the possibility of that there are those in here that are spiritually dead, dead to the things of Christ. And so we pray that you would do a work in their hearts and lives. We pray that you would do a work in the hearts and lives of your people. That you would help us to realize the great mission you've called us to. To take this great gospel message to the ends of the earth Starting in our own communities, maybe our own families, neighbors, friends, workplaces. Help us to go with boldness. In a world that is faced with so much turmoil and upheaval and, uh, and the raging of the peoples, help us to stand fast in the understanding that you are sovereign. There's nothing outside of your control. We just pray that you would do a great work in our midst today. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, last week Pastor Chris got us started off in the book of Psalms. He started with Psalm 1, right? Or as President Biden calls it, the book of palms. <laughs> um, maybe I shouldn't make fun of him, but um, but he started us off with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are basically an introduction to the book of Psalms. Um, A few observations you may want to make. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, they do not have titles. Many times when you're going through the Psalms, you'll see directives to the musicians. Um, You'll see maybe the situation or circumstances that the psalmist finds himself in. Like Psalm 63, David's in the wilderness. He's, He's in a bad place. Um, but So you'll see those superscripts over each psalm. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 doesn't give any acknowledgement of who the author is, the circumstance behind it, the situation. Um, And I think for good reason. I think it's an introduction into the book of Psalms. And I'll give you some of those reasons shortly. Um, There are 150 psalms. Um, Many of them were written by David Um, What's interesting is that they were written over a thousand year period. The first psalm was written by Moses. The last psalm, Psalm 126, was written probably about 440, 450 BC. So it spanned from about 1400 B.C. to 450 B.C. And so you have a thousand year period where these psalms are being written by different authors. Moses, David, Asaph, a whole bunch of folks. And so then you have the job. Somebody has to put these all together in a collection. And they were coordinated and put together in such a way that it appears that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is actually the introduction to the book of Psalms. That's why we don't have titles. Doesn't even mention who the author is. What's interesting, and, and the reason most, most most would come to that conclusion is there's this little literary device called a an inclusio, meaning inclusion. If you remember from last week's preaching, Pastor Chris started with Psalm 1 and it begins with, Blessed is the man, right? That's the opening to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Psalm 2 ends with that same idea. Blessed is he who takes refuge. So, you have that bracket. Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 2, verse 12, and it's bracketed by the idea of blessed is this person, this man, the one who takes refuge in God. Psalm 1 carries with it the idea that Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law of the Lord he meditates both day and night. And then he's likened unto a tree, a fruitful tree that bears fruit, its leaf does not wither. He prospers in all that he does. Not so with the wicked. They're like chaff that's blown away by the wind. And the wicked, they'll not stand in the day of judgment nor sit, nor stand in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows those that are His, right? And the ways of the wicked, they'll perish, but not the ways of the righteous. So, Pastor Chris did point out to us that there are two kinds of people, two pathways, and two destinations. And we see that in the Psalm 1. And I think the idea that it's building at least on the first truth. So, Here's my contention. Psalms 1 and 2 is the entranceway into all the Psalms. And I would contend that it's an entranceway into understanding all the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, but especially the Psalms. Psalm 1 deals with the idea of those that are in covenant relationship with Christ. They are the righteous ones. They're already in a place of covenant relationship with Him. They know their God. That's why they go to the Word of God. They delight in Him. How He's revealed Himself. They delight in Him, His works, His ways, His laws. They meditate on it day and night. They know they're God and they delight in Him. And it has an impact on their lives. Much like it would for any Christian. Think of all the imperatives that we have in Scripture for why you and I as Christians would want to live in such a way that we would please God. I think of Ephesians 5.1 where the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians that as dearly loved children, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. See, I think Psalm 1 has more to do with those that are already in covenant relationship, already delight in their God and they understand who He is and what He's done and their response is an appropriate response. It's a life lived in faithfulness to their great God. Psalm 2 has so pillar one or the doorkeeper, gatekeeper into the Psalms, co- those in covenant relationship with him. Psalm 2 um, has to do with the king. The king and his kingdom. And this is a thread you'll see all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's about his king. In his kingdom. Psalm 2 was written by David. You don't know this from anything you read in Psalm, but you do know it from the book of Acts. Peter, as he reads from the book of um, Psalm, chapter 2, he actually says it is a psalm of David. If you remember the two great covenants of the Old Testament, you have a covenant that God made with Abraham, and it was through Abraham's seed that the whole world would be blessed. And then you have a covenant that God made with David, found in Second Samuel chapter seven, verses eight through uh, 17. I'll give you a summary of it. we won't start we have a lot of passages for you. So I'll try to give you a summary of that covenant that God made with David. David wanted to build God a house, and it turns out that God says, "Now I want to build you a house, you a dynasty." Um, so he enthrones David, but it would be a promise to David and his lineage, Solomon, all the way down through. but that promise. The ultimate part of that promise is one who would reign eternally. So the Davidic covenant is in mind when you're coming to Psalm chapter 2. You will notice in Psalm chapter 2, as we've already read it, it's probably a psalm, either a coronation for David or possibly David wrote it for his son Solomon. Um, but you realize as you sh- going through the psalm that it's speaking of somebody much greater than David. Somebody much greater than Solomon. It, it was never ever realized. The, the things you're going to read about in here were never fully realized in either one of those. So, And actually we, we know this because there's not an eternal king sitting on the throne in the line of David. At least as it pertains to David or Solomon. They all died. They all perished. His whole line did. Um, but we realize that it's a messianic psalm. It's all about... Christ. All about Jesus. And one of the ways we know this is because it is quite oftenly referred to in the New Testament. They actually quote the psalm quite a few times saying this is in fulfillment of. And so they realize that it is a psalm about Jesus Christ. So even though David was enthroned and there was much opposition to his installment as the anointed um, we realize that it definitely goes beyond David. Well, I failed to come up with a title for the sermon and that was pointed out this morning. So, um, I'll give you a couple options. Um, it could be cosmic conflict or cosmic treason. It, it is a psalm about the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of hell. It could be a tale of two cities or two kingdoms. Um, but what you're going to notice in this psalm is that There is opposition to the king. A good way to understand this first psalm, there's four natural um, divisions. Uh, The first stanza would deal with God, I mean with the world and its voice. The world is raging. They're in opposition to God and His kingdom. The second voice that you will hear will start in verses 4 through 6. It's the voice of the sovereign Lord and his response to those that are in rebellion against him, those that are raging against him. The third voice that you will hear, so you're getting to hear four voices today. The third voice you will hear is the reigning Messiah. And you will hear a voice of resolution. And the fourth voice is the voice of the psalmist and his invitation to you and to I to find refuge in the Messiah. Well, let's look at those first three verses again. It's the voice of the world. A voice of rage. And it starts out with a great question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? That's from the ESV. We have up here, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Why? Why? This is a relevant psalm for you and I today. If you watch enough media, or even if you watch just a little bit, you will start to ask yourself the question, why? Why are the nations in a rage? The people plot in vain. Why is there such an uproar, an unrest? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now you have the NASB up there, I have the ESV here, so I have to remember to look back there. But it starts out with the voice of the world. The voice of the world is a voice, they're enraged against God. They want to take off His yoke, His restraints from them some interesting things as you you're looking through this you might ask yourself the question who are the adversaries to this king and this kingdom it's kings its people it's people and princes in verse 1 right it's it's the Court and country, it's great and small. It's all humanity rising up against God. Something else that you'll observe? Notice who their quarrel is with. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Notice who their opposition is against. The adversaries are both great and small, king and peoples. Their opposition is against God. The imagery, the words that are being used, there's such lunacy, insanity, vain, useless. You're crazy. You're so they take up their fight against God. God. Notice some of the descriptions of... There's the spitefulness, maliciousness. They're filled with fretting and raging. There's a vexation that uh, sets in upon them. They continue to be resolute and obstinate against Him. Notice the word. It says they set themselves against Him. Notice the confederacy. There's this council that takes... They counsel together. This combined effort. They conspire against the Lord and His anointed. Notice their aim. They want to take off all restraints. It sounds much like today, doesn't it? You realize that this conflict goes all the way back to Adam... And it still persists today. You can watch the world news and you realize this conflict still exists. We see the murder of millions of unborn babies and you see the world in an uproar against God. They'll they'll continue to rage against Him. Continue to plot in vain. They set themselves against Him. They want to remove any restraint. Today, it's hard to tell if you're a boy or a girl until after you live a few years and then you determine whether you're a boy or a girl. That's lunacy. It's crazy. He's saying, verses 1 through 3 are giving us a clear picture of what fallen humanity looks like. Today, you can become a hero to many if you will just go through a sex change, change your name and then maybe ESPN will give you man of the or woman of the year. I don't know what it was. You know, this is lunacy. And that's what he's saying. This is, people in their rebellion are waging war against God. It is the cosmic conflict. It is cosmic treason. You could spend a few moments watching the news or you could become upset with our educational systems when they want to start introducing ideas like this to our pre-kindergarten all the way through our college-age students. Just all kinds of ridiculous, stupid ideas. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the voice of the world. When did this rebellion start? This rebellion that's being spoken of, it's a great uproar, it's a great restlessness. Um, They do it in vain, Their, their imaginations, their darkened imaginations that would rail against God and His anointed. When did this all start? It started at the beginning. In Genesis, if you remember the story, God made Adam and Eve and He gave Adam the responsibility to be His representative here on earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over the earth. He was God's first king. He was to have dominion over the earth. And then we remember what happened a little bit later. Right? We come to chapter 3 of Genesis. And they're in the garden. And if we have Genesis chapter 3, we'll start with verse 1. It all began in the garden. Adam was appointed to be the son of God. We know this from Luke's gospel, as uh, the genealogy of Christ is given. It traces it all back to Adam, the son of God. Adam, the son of God. Um, So let's read Genesis chapter 3. So now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave it to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. What's happening there? Adam failed. The serpent comes into the garden deceives Eve. Adam partakes of the fruit. Behind the lie that's being spoken by the serpent is the lie that you can have life abundantly apart from God. See, and actually it goes to the integrity and insults God. You know, God's actually hes probably withholding something from you. He knows that the moment you eat... It'll be a whole new world. You'll live life to its fullest. And they buy into the lie. It's man's attempt to live autonomously. To be self-ruled. So they could have life without restraints. To live life to its fullest. And they bought into the lie. And that same rebellion continues today. We want... There's an assassination on God, His character, His person. And the world still lives with that hostility toward God. When I say the world, it's both great and small. We see that in Psalms. It's the whole world, and we'll see that shortly. It's a universal problem. Notice where what happens, though, is that they try to live life independently of God. They distrust God, they believe the lie of the devil and that starts the cosmic treason, the cosmic conflict. Man has been at war with God ever since. The battle you see waging in our media, our schools, our publics, our governments, um, the Democrats and the Republicans, it's not just, it's a war. Man versus God. Man versus his kingdom. Adam failed. He should have been God's representative. But we have a promise shortly after the fall. If you would have kept reading in Genesis chapter 3, God promises that he would give a seed to the woman and the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and his heel would be bruised. And it's already the gospel in seed form. And it's a seed that's going to run all the way through the Old Testament. Through the line of Judah, through the line of Jesse, David. And we have the Davidic covenant. It finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so we have a king that's already being anticipated from the very beginning. Where Adam failed, we're now introduced to the idea that there will be one who does crush the serpent's head even though his heel would be bruised. Well, lest you and I think that the world is just the Democrats, or if you're on the other persuasion, the Republicans, lest you or I think it's just the lesbian or the homosexual on their agenda, it's those out there, the Bible makes it quite clear that the problem is you and I. We're part of the nations that are raging. Part of the people who are plotting in vain. Our minds were darkened. We set ourselves against God. How do I know this? I think the guys should have Romans chapter 1. Starting with verse 18. Adam failed, but you and I do as well. The Bible makes it quite clear. We were in hostility toward God. Notice verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile. Pretty much seeing the same language we see in Psalm chapter 2, right? Became futile in their speculations. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of God of the exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Just like you see in the garden, it's plagued us ever since. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, it might not answer the question, how do you play into this? How, are you a player? are you one of those that were in opposition to the Lord and his anointed? Well, let's go a little bit further in Romans chapter 3. And I think you should have verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous. How many? And you're part of that group. None. I'm part of that group. Not even one. There's not one righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness... Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who is it? Who's part of this cosmic conflict, this cosmic treason? It's you and I. Well... Hopefully, you've switched teams, but universally it's saying that it's the reality of all mankind. They're the ones raging. Now, you and I may be tempted to watch the TV and go, I can't believe them out there. Well, we were part of that group at one point in time. This is the voice of the world. It's a voice that should be familiar to you and I because it was once our voice. We were at unrest. We were waging war. We were filled with rage. Acting stupid, being stupid. That's what he's talking about. Vanity, useless. Do you realize who you're waging war against? Who you would insult and be a part of this great rebellion against him? That was you and I. We at one point in time did not like any restraint. It's interesting because those first three verses are quoted in the book of Acts. It's quoted by the Apostle Peter as he's about to pray. So if we have Acts chapter 4 verses 23 through 29... little bit of backdrop to the situation. Peter and John, they're going to the temple. They find the man sitting at the temple. He was an invalid. He could not walk. And his walking was restored. Guy got up walking. And then Peter starts to preach. And guess who he's preaching about? The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who came to die for our sins, was buried and rose again three days later, and he was put to death by your hands. That's what he started preaching, and he started preaching it right there in Jerusalem. Didn't go over real good. He ended up in prison, right? He ends up in prison, and now he's being released from prison, and I think we should be there. When they had had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. A little bit further, all the way through. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said. Notice it's going to be a quotation of Psalms. The mouth of our father David, your servant said. And. So it's going to be a fulfillment of this. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservant may speak your word with all confidence. They had an understanding from Psalm chapter 2, and that's what they're quoting. They've seen the raging of the people, they've seen this collaborate, this confederation come together. They're making war against God and His anointed. They crucify the Messiah. Right? They crucify the Messiah. Notice the reason for the quotation. It's interesting his commentary on it, Peter's commentary. Even though the people may have been waging war against God, their voice is one of rage and uproar and at unrest, thinking vain things, fighting against God and His anointed. It was part of God's bigger plan. God used their evil and turned it in such a way that we have a Christ who was crucified for our sins, died, rose again. He's saying this was the predestined plan and purpose of God. God used evil men to accomplish his own purposes. For you and I, especially if you're a believer today, hopefully you don't get too too bent out of sorts when you see the direction of our world. Hopefully you realize there is one who's in control. There's not a stray atom. There's not a stray molecule. God is sovereign. He is in control. It was that confidence that Peter used to go to him and say, we know that we're out here amongst a bunch of crazies, insane people who are waging a war against you. And what was their prayer? That you would give us boldness, confidence. So the first takeaway point to you and I, if we're believers realize that God is sovereign and pray. Be bold. Be confident. We have a message that the world needs to hear. A world that's in chaos. A world that's in an uproar. They're vexed. They're insane. They're hostile toward God. They're filled with rage. Well, enough of the voice of the world. We get enough of that on a daily basis. Let's turn our ears to the voice of the sovereign Lord. Let's see what his response is. So I'm sure God's up in heaven thinking, what did I do? I made man and look. You know, he's probably up there pacing. Is that what you expect to see when you go to verses 4 through 6? Like God sitting there wringing his hands, pulling his hair, uh, kicking the dog. I don't know. Um, What do you expect? You know, what's God's response going to be? This world's out of control. I just don't know what to do. Notice, let's read verses 4 through 6. It's the voice of the sovereign Lord. It's his response to this world that's in rebellion against him. He who sits in the thrones or in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. We'll stop at verse 4 for a second. Notice He's not up there wringing his hands. He's not pacing. He's not nervous. Things aren't out of control. He laughs. Not in a humorous way. He looks at puny little man who's created this rebellion against him and it's like, seriously? You guys are nuts. Look at the vanity. And it says, the Lord holds them in derision. Notice there is a contrast here between the Lord, who's sovereign, in control, ruling, um, He's at ease. This is no sweat. Notice the world, they were in an uproar. Unrest, vexed, perplexed. They God? Not so. So he laughs at them, he holds them in derision, he mocks them, scoffing at them. Remember Psalm 1 started with a group of people that were wicked, unrighteous, become scoffers. You know, that's quite common for you and I to hear today. People scoffing us for what we believe, or what we think, or who God is, or what he's done. And um, Notice, God's the last one laughing. He laughs at them, he holds them in derision. There's sarcasm. Sarcasm doesn't go over real good with us today. If I ever use it as a form of communication, I normally get yelled at by my wife. God gets to use it. I don't. But he's holding them in derision. He's scoffing them, mocking at them. Notice he's not undone. He's sitting there laughing at them, holds them in derision. He sees them as being—they're impotent. They're seriously, but he will respond to them. Notice in verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. He doesn't wink at their sin just because they're impotent and helpless and hopeless, just because their understanding's darkened. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It is interesting because how do you and I, how did the world come into existence or man himself? God spoke it into existence, right? It is interesting because he's going to speak again. I can speak you into existence and by the power of his word you will perish. It's interesting because Jesus is seen in the latter days coming with a sword coming from where? His mouth. It's not a literal sword. He's not a sword swallower, you know, but speaks of the power of his word. He will undo his enemies. He will come with wrath and fury. And then verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The sovereignty of God. God's anointed is appointed and will not be disappointed. These are the words of Spurgeon. God is sovereign, He's in control. Let me repeat that God's anointed is appointed. By who? God. And will not be disappointed. It will not be frustrated. You might have the world waging war against him, raging. But it will not undo his plan. This was part of the eternal counsel of God in all eternity. That God would anoint his son. Actually, it's quite interesting because the the idea of anointed one, Mashiach in the Hebrew Carries over to us in the English by Messiah. If it was Greek coming over to the English, it would be the Christ. This is the Christ. This is God's anointed one. Nobody can undo that. Notice it says, I have set. Even though there's always been war waged against him and his kingdom, could not frustrate his plan. The raging cannot prevail. Well, let's turn our attention to the third voice. It's the voice of the Messiah. And it's a voice of resolution. He's resolute, he's fully committed, devoted to God's word, his will. His work, his ways, his word. Um, let's read verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Remember, the first Adam failed. He was called to be God's representative here on earth, to be the king. He fails, rebels against God, and plummets all humanity down that road. And We're all rebels since. The second Adam, he succeeds because he was resolute. Notice, I will tell of the decree. He was, he was committed. He was devoted to God's word. I'm not sure he would have carried around the bumper sticker that says that God said it, I believe it, therefore it is settled, or however that phrase goes. But he was resolute to the Word of God. How many times, Pastor Matt's been preaching through the book of John, how many times have you heard his resolution to God's Word, that I do all His Word. He's committed to do His will. My food... My labor is to do what? The will of God. He was committed to his word, his will, his work. My work is to do the will of him who sent me. I do nothing of myself, only what... Go with me a moment. First Adam, he fails in the garden. Capitulates the enemy the second Adam he's tempted in another place actually on two other occasions that we're aware of one place is after his baptism and the Satan comes to him the devil comes to him and he tempts him he's in a wilderness on a 40 day fast not in a garden but he's found in a wilderness and you have a parallel temptation If you be the Son of God, bow down and worship me. I can give you all the world. Read that sometime. First part of Luke chapter 4. Christ doesn't concede. He doesn't give in. He doesn't succumb to the temptation, the lie of the devil. Um, He indeed is the Son of God and he overcomes him a little bit later on it's near the crucifixion Christ is in a garden and this time he's praying what's he praying? he was quite aware of what would be ahead of him that he wouldn't have to suffer on a cruel cross and be separated from God the Father and he's praying if it's your will let this cup depart from me the cup representing God's full wrath and fury upon sinful man Christ was going to bear that for sinful man but he says not my will but thine be done see the first Adam failed in a garden the second Adam he passes the test in both the wilderness and the garden he was committed to his father's will to his work to his word So I'll tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We do see this um, expression, this quotation, several times in the scriptures. We have Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And Christ is committed to this. He's resolute. It's the Lord's word. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You have to understand that Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was always the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten. There was never a time when he was not the Son of God. But in his incarnation, he does take on flesh. I have a few other passages. How about? So, in this case, he's, he's showing from the Psalms that Jesus is not a created being. He always existed. Um, unlike the angels, um, God has never told any of the angels, hey, you're my only begotten Son, my one and only unique Son of God, monolith. You know, this is mine. Um, How about uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 38? And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he also fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Corruption. Let it be known to you, brothers, or therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then one other passage, Romans 1.4. And then we'll see what all of them have in common. Romans 1.4. Speaking of Jesus, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is interesting, that word declared to be the Son of God, we get the word horizon from. So when you wake up early in the morning, I know most of you guys may not get up this morning, none of the kids do, but when you first walk out and you see the sun coming up, that's the horizon. It's a demarcation. Here's earth, here's the sky. And we look down there and there's clear delineation between what the sky is and what the earth is. And here's what he's saying in the book of Romans that he was declared thats the, to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you follow what he's saying earlier in that same chapter... In the flesh, he was according to the line of David, but what was he before he became enfleshed or incarnate? He was always the eternal Son of God. The resurrection was just a demonstration, that line of demarcation saying, he is who he said he is. This is the Christ, the Son of God. So you see the authors, both in Hebrews, it's pointing to Christ, Being the eternal Son of God, unlike the angels, he was never created. Um, Here through his resurrection, it's evidence, it shows that he is who he said he was. He's the eternal Son of God. Sure, he did come in flesh, um, but he was raised to power. And then verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. David was never promised the whole earth. You look at the covenants. There was a certain geog- geographic area; people would be safe, preserved. But notice the promise to the Messiah: "Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. It reminds me of Matthew twenty-eight verses eighteen through twenty, when Jesus says that I have all authority. Do we have that passage? All authority in heaven and earth is mine. And then what does he tell his disciples to do? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. He has all authority, and he now calls his church to go in that authority, go into all the world, making disciples. And lo and behold, I'm with you even to the end. So the voice of the Messiah, we hear a resolute voice. He is the Son of God. He's resolute to God's Word. He's committed to it, devoted to it. Um, Man shall not live by... Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's taking place in the wilderness, the temptation. And Jesus is committed to God's word. He's the one saying, I will tell of the decree. He's also committed to his will not my will be done, but thine be done. He's committed to his work. He, was, he lived a life resolution, unlike the raging world. He wasn't looking for his own autonomy. But he was submissive to the Father and to his will, his work, and his word. And so Christ asked the Father for the nations and he gives them all authority. And that authority is extended to all who proclaim his name in all the earth. In your neighborhoods, in your schools, in your workplace, we go in his name. Now, for those that will not bow their knee to him, notice he does give them the nations. Um, In this sense, I hope there is nobody here that wants to experience this side of his wrath and fury. Verse 9, he gives them the nations, and we can go in all authority and proclaim his name, but speaking of Christ, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's Vessel, It would be worse than a bull in a china shop. He gives him power to make war against the nations. And one day he will return. The book of Revelations actually quotes this psalm three times. And one, he's returning to make war against those who are in rebellion against him. So we have the voice of the world. It's a voice we should have all been familiar with. Hopefully your voice has changed. Um, We have the voice of the Sovereign Lord and His response. He's not intimidated by the world or the raging of the world. We have the voice of the Son and it's resolute. He's committed to His to God's Word, to His will, to His work. And now we hear the voice of the psalmist. I couldn't demonstrate that it's the voice of the Holy Spirit or it's the voice of the church, even though it seems like it would fit. But it is an invitation. I hope by now, maybe I didn't make it real clear, but in Psalm 2 you have the gospel in capsule form you have the rebellion of man, sinful man. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. This is the bent inclination of all of our hearts until God does His sovereign work in our hearts and lives. You have God sending the Messiah, the sovereign one. He was in control. He used the plotting of Herod, Pilate, enemies with each other, but they were more than willing to make their alliances, both Jews and Gentiles Rome. He brings those alliances together all for his predetermined purpose, which was the death of his own son. That was his predetermined plan. That's how he would save sinful man. We we see the voice of the Messiah. He's given all authority. He is the only begotten. He not only died for our sins, but he rose again. And is declared to be the Son of God with power. And now the great invitation. All of humanity in rebellion in an uproar against God, they don't like Him. They don't like His ways. And now there's the offer to them, to you and to I, to lay down your arms. Notice the invitation. Now therefore, in light of... Here's who God is. Here's what He's done. In light of that... Hear the fourth voice. The fourth voice is a voice of pleading. It's an invitation. You can be reconciled to God. Notice what he says now, therefore. O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth. In other words, he's calling for a change of mind. You need to change your understanding of who God is and what he's done. Change your mind. Be wise. Be warned. Do you realize what's going to happen? He'll either be your savior or he will be your judge. Much like the one with the iron rod that in a potter's field or he's going to crush you. It says be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. It's calling for a change of the way we think about him. That really is the first step in repentance, by the way. Then he says serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's an idea of submitting your will to his. Submit yourself to his rule. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It's calling for a change of heart. So a change of how we think about God. How we act a, an aspect of our volition or our will, submission of our wills to His, it's also a change of heart toward Him. We no longer see God as our enemy, we see Him for who He is. Jonathan Edwards used to have an expression that um, the unregenerate, and he would include the devil there and say, The one thing they could never see God as is beautiful. We can see him in many other ways. We can see his power, authority. You might acknowledge some of those other characteristics of God that are on display. But they can never ever see him as beautiful. Until you're born again, you see God for the first time going, Wow, I've been an enemy of his all this time. I can't believe how amazing he is. And that's why I often pray, Lord, help me to see your splendor, your beauty, your glory, your mat. I want to see all the power and majesty, but I want to see him for who he is. The saint, Satan can never see him that way. The unregenerate man doesn't see him that way. What about you? Do you see him for who he is? It's an invitation. It's a call to see him for who he is. Change your mind, a change of the will, a change of the heart. And it ends with the idea of a blessing. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. I don't know anybody that sets out in life to be happy, I mean, unhappy. Hopefully, that's not your agenda. Hopefully, by the time we're done, which we are done, that you can see Him for who He is, all that He's done. And your response, hopefully, would be one of faith. That's the idea of taking refuge in Him taking your rest in Him, refuge in Him, finding... uh, Some of the translations even have blessed are those who trust in Him. That is the gospel call, by the way. It's an open invitation to anyone that will come. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so it it is an invitational call um, to respond to Him. So... We hear the four voices. First voice, for the believer, if you're a believer, realize that God is in control. He is sovereign. Pray to Him for boldness, confidence, to go out into a world that's hostile toward Christ and the, His anointed and our message. Um, but go. We do want to pray, right? Um, and we shouldn't be shaken by what's taking place in our world today. This should not be, take any of us by surprise. This isn't new with our generation. The idea of being progressive isn't really a new idea. They're actually regressive. This is what mankind's always done. It's new to us in America of recent. Um, Second thing, know that he is the sovereign one. We understand in the first segment the depravity of humanity. Second one, God has established his anointed. God is in control. There's not one thing that's not outside of his control. Third, the Messiah. Hopefully you hear his voice and you want to become imitators of him. Also, he was given all authority so that we also can go into all the world proclaiming his name. And fourth, hopefully we would be those that become the voice of the psalmist inviting others. So, so let us close in prayer. Father, there is the promise of blessing for all those who take refuge in you. I do pray for those of us who are believers that um, we would do much like Paul said to Titus uh, in instructing believers to remember that they once were foolish Darken in their own understanding, uh, rebels toward God. We once too walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We, we were by nature children of wrath, and yet so help us in how we respond to those outside the faith. We don't take up weapons of war. We, we should be armed with the gospel. We should be willing to go boldly and confidently we pray for if there anybody be in our midst today that has not found refuge in the Son, that they would hear the great invitation to be wise, to be warned, to kiss the Son, to come to Him, to trust in Him. For in Him there is real life, life more abundantly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.